many of us have had abuse or betrayal or abandonment. There's years of loss that we've just been shoving down. And what happens is it gets shoved into the body. So the body's actually what's taking that load. And in a sense, imagine you have a partner that is trying to tell you, I need to be listened to, or I need to express. And we keep saying, shut up, shut up, get in the fucking corner. I don't want to listen to you. We slam him in the room. And that's what we've been doing to ourselves when we've been hearing these voices. So what we allow ourselves to do is it's really for the body. Forgiveness is to allow our body the space for us to allow to come up what's in there and for us really just to feel with it, to have the courage to go in and allow ourselves to be okay with it. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men This Way. Do you ever feel emotionally stuck? Ever say or think you're over something when you're just not? And can so many of your so-called problems actually resolve themselves if you could just be with your feelings? Well, in this episode, my guest Joshua Wenner and I mine these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. I love what Joshua is up to in the world. In particular, his work to help men heal from deep physical and emotional trauma. While he does a lot of things, one thing I want you to know is that he leads emotional resiliency trainings up in the mountains west of Los Angeles for first responders like policemen and firemen. And you'll hear some remarkable stories in this episode about what becomes possible when men start simply being willing to open up about the hard day they just had with spouses and children, how that can even save lives. Despite being exposed to death throughout his childhood and young adult years, including a stint in the National Guard during which he deployed to Iraq for Operation Iraqi Freedom, Josh's real journey into grief and emotional literacy or resiliency really began after losing his brother in 2007 to addiction. Just three days after his brother had asked to come live with him and Joshua said no. And he shares that story of what happened in this podcast. But that moment launched him into what has become a lifelong journey of grieving and healing and teaching men the same. He's actually working on a documentary series called Grief to Grace, and the trailer is just electrifying and inspiring and heartwarming and touching. Go watch it. The link will be in the show notes at brianreeves.com. It's brian with a Y, reeves.com slash men this way podcast. The link will be there. Check it out. I've been able to spend some time with Joshua this last year in a variety of settings, including a men's group called Man Cave Elite that we're both part of, brought together by a mutual friend, Preston Smiles. Preston was also a guest back in the early days of this podcast, something like the first 10 episodes, I think. Anyway, I just really like Joshua. He's easy to be around and clearly a deep soul who's been through a lot in life. Today, we talk about men and loss, the ways we pretend and distract from our pain, the hidden costs of our suffering to ourselves and our loved ones, and what we can do to begin healing every day from the everyday pains we suffer so we can get our lives back and actually live with vitality, true contentment, even joy. And we both share some great practices that we do ourselves and we offer the people we work with to help process your pain in ways that are safe, constructive, and serve not just you, but everyone around you. So definitely stay tuned for Joshua's five key takeaways at the end of this episode of Men this way. All right, let's dive. Joshua Wenner, my friend, it is an honor to have you on Men This Way. Welcome. Thank you. Really excited to be here with you today. I got to say, man, when did we first meet? We actually met at my house like a year ago or so, right? Yep. Yep. And I think you and Sylvie had connected on Instagram. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Somehow we connected like at an event or something, or I forget it was somehow online. And I really appreciated her content and kept connecting and then came to your house since we actually met at your house for the first time, which is really cool. 
That's right. <laughs> At my front door. I'll never forget that, man. And I'll tell you, man, because we've gotten to spend some time together in that men's group that we're a part of. And just the more that I learn about you and what you're up to and get to spend time in your presence, man, I just have more and more respect and appreciation and admiration for what you're up to. Dude, you're fucking killing it in the world in all kinds of ways, man. Just want to acknowledge you. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you as a friend and as a brother. And I've had the same experience. The the more we get time to connect, we have a lot of similar beliefs, similar resonance, it feels like, of similar energy. So I really appreciate how you show up. And it's really helpful for me, actually, I mean, even my last relationship, being able to reach out and get some insights from it. So you've really been a force for good in my life. So I really appreciate you, brother. Thank you, man. I really appreciate that. I received that. And we're going to talk about some of the things that you're up to. Again, I just love the work that you're doing around emotional resilience for men in particular around the King Warrior Magician Lover work that you're also now moving more into, and especially the grief aspect of your work. And that's probably where we'll focus our conversation. But, well, first off, actually, you have this film, Grief to Grace. Like, when is that coming out? I'm still working on that. So I've changed the model a little bit. Initially, it started out as a documentary. And I'm in the final stages of actually separating with my business partner. We co-created together, and we both lost our brothers and realized we both needed to have control to tell our own story. And the two of us trying to collaborate was not working. And somehow through what we've learned, I'll actually put it that way, instead of a heavy conflict as most business separations can be, it's actually been one of the most painful because we've had to give up content, but really painful and healthy. We're actually now, I'm driving my film, he's driving his film, and we're actually helping each other finish the story. So it's actually gotten that level of support in each other that we both have our own storyline. So We're in the final stages of that. We've literally had to go through every shared file and okay it with each other. So it's been a pretty tedious process. The last year has been about the separation. And now I'll have my own piece and I'll be doing it in the goal is to launch it online. The current trajectory is either end of 2020 or beginning of 21. And it'll be a nine part docuseries that I'll be releasing online. So free, it's something I want to give away for free. And I want to educate people on the same knowledge that I have. Well, you just said a lot of amazing things, but one thing that I want to highlight, it gives me chills to think about it because, you know, you and I both know we men are not taught how to do conflict well, how to disagree in partnership. And, you know, I think that's one of the things I think my parents divorced when I was four and it was not pretty and they never again liked each other, if you will, for the rest of my life. That has been an ongoing source of pain for me. And I see it through my work and what you just shared. Like it delights me to hear of two men who, even in a professional situation where money's on the line, all kinds of, you know, artistic outcome and expression and business. And for you to be able to, I'm sure it had its moments of chaos and tension and all of that. But the fact to hear that you two are separating in a way while still being supportive and in partnership with each other, man, highest praise, truly. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a long, difficult process and definitely there was hell. It's so attached because we're in the story each. We've all shot all the footage. So we're highly attached to the content and even the interviews. We had to trade interviews and like one of the guys is dead. He's not alive anymore. I used to use lighter words like transitioned and now I'm more direct, like he's dead. I can't go get the content anymore. So some of those things were really difficult to give up and yet it felt aligned and we both wanted to leave the situation with us both able to tell our own stories and us both feeling good. And that was our outcomes. And so, yeah, thanks, man. I'm really proud of that too, because it's been challenging. And we're in the final stages until the contract's finally, you know, signed. We're really close to that. So. Well, just the fact that you spoke to that, the outcome isn't just getting what's mine, but really ensuring that you both feel supported, dude. That's fantastic, man. I'm just glad to hear it. Just makes my heart feel good because I know that is something lacking in the world today. And I want to dive more into grief, but first, you just got back from Burning Man. I'm envious. I haven't been in six years. I know this is your 16th year. Yeah, this was my 16th year. And one of the things that I saw, I think you did an Instagram post about it, about your Thursday morning forgiveness ceremony. What's that about? And will you do that again next year so I can go? Yes. Thank you for asking. I've been doing it This is my 11th year. It started after my brother died. So my brother died in 2007, and I'm sure we'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. But I had such a deep connection with them, and I went pretty deep. Back then, I was performing as a fire performer. I did it as a part-time, but I performed professionally for a couple years. 
And I did this ceremony. It just happened to be at sunrise when I was called to it Thursday at the temple for my family the first year. And I went out there and did this ceremonial, I don't know what you call it thing. I took his ashes and I was really attached to taking his ashes and doing these ceremonies. It was like ritual for me. And we built a tribute to him at the temple. And I took my brother's ashes, shared it with my family. We did this experience. And out of all the healings that I did, which I'm sure I'll get to in a minute when I talk more about my journey, but forgiveness was, I had a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. I had punished myself really hard for the choices that I made surrounding my brother. And because of that, and I did a ton of healing, the forgiveness was actually what brought more levity into my life. And so the temple has, out of anywhere on the earth, and I've been, I've traveled all over the world, and there's some amazing temples, but this temple that gets created every year has so much magic because this year, 70,000 plus people and majority of those people have lost a loved one. They've gone through some sort of body shaming. They've gone through some sort of loss or pain or struggle, even if it was years ago, if it's not more recent, animals, loved ones, body parts, just relationships, divorces, and they write tributes at the temple. And so what happens is they've been grieving. It's actually a safe place to grieve. So we're in nature, we're in society. Do we have a safe place to grieve? There's not. So that's one of the safe places to grieve. And so all week, that's what's encouraged. So on Thursday at sunrise, now I go out and at the temple, I hold the forgiveness ceremony and we do it. Everybody wears white and we come out to the temple and right after the sunrises, we sage everybody, which is just a way to cleanse the energy. And then I actually have my parents now involved in it and they take my brother's ashes and they walk around and look at each person and give each person the ashes and get to connect. I walk them through some exercises where we do some eye gazing to really be seen. So one person gazes at the other, we know it's uncomfortable, but it's to do it on purpose. The other person gazes back. And then we do some grief yoga exercises. The grief yogas are from a guy named Paul Dennison I interviewed through my documentary. And what it does is it combines breath work and movement in the body to bring up all the stuff that we've basically pushed away. So the intention is let's consciously go into this space amidst all the joy and play and amazing things that happen at the burn. And let's give a moment to experience the other. Let's allow ourselves to feel the guilt, the shame, the pain that we've been burned, betrayal or abandonment. There's years of loss that we've just been shoving down. And what happens is it gets shoved into the body. So the body's actually what's taking that load. And in a sense, imagine you have a partner that is trying to tell you, I need to be listened to, or I need to express. And we keep saying, shut up, shut up, get in the fucking corner. I don't want to listen to you. We slam him in the room. And that's what we've been doing to ourselves when we've been hearing these voices. So what we allow ourselves to do is it's really for the body. Forgiveness is to allow our body the space for us to allow to come up what's in there and for us really just to feel with it, to have the courage to go in and allow ourselves to be okay with it. So after some grief yoga exercises, we're bringing all this stuff up that we've been kind of burying down. We then walk through a very simple exercise of just feeling what's ever there and present and saying, I forgive myself for a long period of time out loud. And then I forgive myself. I forgive you and please forgive me. And I learned this from a shaman in Sedona years back when I was healing, but what it does is instead of the longhand way of typically in, around personal development, you look for your limiting beliefs surrounding something and then identify what those are and then look for empowering beliefs. What I find this does is it's almost like a heat sensor where you basically, you don't even have to know consciously. You go right into the body and just feel. And as you say the words, things release. It's a way to, if you will, shortcut the longhand process through the head to try to solve trauma and abuse and grief just allows whatever's in the body more from a somatic way just to come up. We feel it. We say the word. And I use a type of forgiveness called emotional forgiveness. There's a clear distinction. Emotional forgiveness is where all the research shows that all the benefits are health-wise. And what happens is when a lot of us have grief, loss, trauma, and we replay these really bad emotions and they loop, what happens is we're actually experiencing pain over and over and over again. And that's what increases inflammation levels. It increases all these other problems in the body. So emotional forgiveness does not mean if somebody hurts you, you have to make friends with them. It does not mean you have to make it okay. It does not mean anything needs to be resolved out of anything. All we're purely doing is going in and identifying what harmful thoughts or harmful memories are we replaying and punishing ourselves with almost like chains. And we're removing those and we're replacing them with empathy and deep compassion, almost shattering those chains. And the gift is really the ultimate form of self-love. We're, we're actually going to be there with the body to say, I'm with you. You don't need to carry this on your own anymore. I'm with you. So people come for body shaming. They've been shaming their body for years. So really, it starts off around grief and loss. But as the levers go deeper, 
and people keep going deeper the layers, it ends up becoming this ultimate area of really loving the body enough to love the body as it loves us and to be present with us and to say, hey, what do you need to let go of? I'm here with you. It's okay. So that's really the course of it. There's a lot of release. There's a lot of crying and it's a safe place for people to go there. And a lot of people come up afterward saying it was one of the highlights of their burn because they could actually feel. So thanks for asking. Well, yeah, man. Well, what I'm hearing is a lot of allowing inside of all of that. You know, I've been so present these last few years, actually, as I've been kind of waking up to all of the loss I've experienced in my life. And I actually haven't had, I mean, a few deaths here and there, but nothing like a best friend or a family, a really close family member. or, And yet I have lost so many friends just to, you know, one move to Greece two, three, four years ago. And I will probably never see that man again. He's older. He's one of my dearest friends here in Los Angeles. And it crushes me when I really allow myself to be with the sadness of the lack of that interaction anymore. We had so much fun together and just things like that, that normally I would write off or just, yeah, you know, he just moved to Greece. It's no big deal. Well, it's a huge deal because I'm not interacting with him and that's just not likely to happen. I mean, certainly not the way we worked together before. And anyway, I just see this all over the place, you know, throughout my life. And that piece that you mentioned about, I really like how you frame that. It's like a partner. We're being with a partner and hear the partner saying, hey, I'm feeling something. Something's happening for me. Listen to me. And we're saying, ah, shut up. I ain't got time for you right now. I got bills to pay. I got places to go. I got other things to accomplish. I have a video game that needs my attention or, (laughs) you know, or a business deal that I need to focus on. And I see the parallels to that, to how then we especially treat our partners, our intimate partners, for example, or even our brothers and sisters or other men or other women who may be experiencing, who just want to be listened to, want to be heard. And yet, you know, if we can't hear our own bodies, unless it's overtly obvious and understandable to us logically what they're upset about, which is not often the case, I find, then I don't want to hear it. I think this might ground it in. It's a fundamental framework that I use, a metaphor that I use to understand grief and loss. And I use it on something very visual that we can understand and relate to. So think of emotional loss and think about it in this context of physical loss. So grief is the natural response to loss. Loss is heartbreak. At the end of the day, what's happening is we're falling deeply in love with something And then the deeper in love we fall with that is, and it doesn't, it could be a person, it could be a thing, it could be an idea or a dream. And the fantasies are the ones that are a little bit more elusive to a lot of people. They don't realize how much they visualize and fantasize, but they fell in love with it. And the deeper we fall in love, the deeper our pain. So our pain is more of a reflection of our love, not what it is. So many times people will compare, oh, how could you feel this way of this or this? But it literally has nothing to do with it. It purely has to do with the more we love it. And then when it's taken from us, the level of heartbreak is in relation to that level of love. So on that principle, think about it like this. Let's imagine you get a, a little nick on your hand. You notice the nick, it's painful. You see it for a second, but maybe it goes away in a couple of days. You didn't have to do anything and it's fine. You could have ignored it, not even a problem. Let's imagine now you get a sprain on your leg and you need a cast, a sprain, like a bad sprain with crutches for like six weeks. You notice it, you're slower. Everybody's asking you questions. You're talking about it. Even though you're frustrated that you're slower, you still are like, looking down and you can't walk. So the body tells you, oh, I have a reason to be upset. It's okay that I'm upset. And so you validate that pain, but eventually you can walk again. Now let's raise the level of severity. Let's say you get both your legs shattered, both legs. If you walked around without having a cast, you would continue to re-break them. So they cast you. And for three to six months, you're in a cast. In those three to six months, you are slow. Everything in life is now different, but people ask you everywhere you go, what happened? It's okay to talk about it. They even use it as a starter. Hey, How's this doing again? So you get sick. You talk about it so much. You get sick of it. And it's totally acceptable to talk about it all the time. It's totally acceptable to have it for a long period of time because people have seen you physically with the cast. And so it's normalized. Yeah, you can see it. It's a tangible thing that we can measure. Okay, we see the x-rays. It's broken. There's no arguing it. And then when the casts come off, you're another three to six months to heal because now you have to actually go through the rehabilitation because the muscles have atrophied. So when you shatter your legs, you're six to 12 months where your life is totally slowed down, totally different trajectory. You're forced to go through grief, let's call it, but it's acceptable and okay because you can see it. And at the end of that time, you get your legs back. And I can also see how during the healing, sort of the rehabilitation process, 
there might be some people that are saying, man, you should be walking more by now. But I get it. You broke your legs. You know, I got to give you some space, you know, heal. I might push you a little bit, but there's still it's with an understanding that you broke your fucking legs. Right. Because you can see it. It's expected. And it's expected for the long period of time. Now imagine you lose your legs. I have friends that have lost their legs. So and you've been in both military backgrounds. Right. So it doesn't get better. You can use, there's a lot of technology now that makes it so you can walk again, but you never actually get your legs back. There's no healing period of time where you get over it and then you get your legs back, but there are prosthetics. There's a lot of things you can do to get the ability, but the metaphor is there's no getting your legs back to the way that they were before. That vision can never happen again. So the only way of dealing with it is accepting that. And there's no fixing it versus accepting it is the difference. And how often do we walk in? How normal is it to ask people in wheelchairs? I see in our culture, the deeper the trauma, the more uncomfortable people get. You know, I'm pretty comfortable just because I'm around the space, really open. Hey, what happened? Why are you in a wheelchair? What happened to your legs? Like I talk about it. Some people I find, maybe it's my observation, but it seems like people a little bit less willing to approach people and talk about trauma when people are missing limbs or they go deeper down the trauma. So think about that in relation to emotional pain. What type of a pain was it? And the, based on our love, was it a nick? Was it a sprain? Was it both of our legs broken or was it a loss of the limbs? And there's a fix for it. It takes time, but there's a fix for the fourth where your legs are gone. There's no fix. So the deeper the level of emotional loss, the deeper the love, there's no fix. The only way out is through. And the way through is literally just being with that and noticing when it comes up, being really gentle with yourself. And it continues to surface from time to time. So with the loss of a loved one, sometimes the loss of a relationship, there's this big hole in your heart. And the problem is that we think there's something wrong with us because there's the hole there. The key is learning to know there's a hole there because I'm heartbroken. I'm broken and I'm whole. I'm not this whole personal development is like we're whole humans. We're whole humans. The distinguish it is we love so deeply. So we have parts of us that feel heartbroken and learning to truly accept that is actually what sets us free because then when it surfaces, we're not trying to run around and try to fix it. We're not trying to run around and try to numb it. We're just identifying like, Oh, I'm in pain. Let me be with this pain for a little bit. And the quicker we can identify it and go in and be with it, the actual faster we bounce back. Yeah. You know what struck me about, I mean, it's a great metaphor. What struck me about it too, and the reason that I brought up that example of, look, you break your legs and people understand, okay, you got broken legs, but a broken heart, you know, you lose a relationship and let's say the people around you or even you yourself, like it wasn't a good relationship. It just wasn't healthy. It wasn't this or whatever. And it was, but you were in it for a while and you loved this person just the same. And just part of you knows it had to end. And I remember when I was 26 years old and I'd been married to a French woman for eight months. I call it my catastrophe spectaculaire. It's my spectacular catastrophe. And I remember I, I went to, down to Miami to heal. My dad was living down there at the time, and I went to stay with him and heal from that experience. And I remember I just kept talking about it. I'd literally gotten kicked out of our home, you know, days, weeks before. And and so I was talking about it with my sisters and just processing with friends and, you know, like what happened, what I just went through for these eight months. And, and I remember my dad turned to me just after a couple of weeks and, and he said, you know what, it's time for you to stop talking about it. <laughs> and I remember... That felt like a fucking punch in the stomach. It's time for me to stop talking about it. I don't know exactly what his intention was at the time, and maybe I even remember it a little differently, and he might say it wasn't quite that, but that's the message that I got from his communication, and it was essentially telling me, okay, I need to bury this and move the fuck on because, hey, my legs weren't broken. You know, I'm out of a relationship that wasn't working. Move on. And yet I was devastated and it took me a long time. I mean, it's taken me years to heal from the significant relationships in my life. And I think that's, you know, the thing that I really love about your work and what you're bringing up here in the forgiveness ceremony. And I want to dive into your experience with your brother as well. But what I'm hearing over and over is it is the allowing, the being with, the I don't hear necessarily indulging in the drama and the agony of it, but really just being gentle with what's arising, with what is present, with sadness. And I think that's something that God knows, you know, even just the other night, I'm in another men's group that meets weekly, and one of the men in our group decided to not be with us anymore. And, you know, there's grieving that is going to be required of certainly of me and of us. And it's just amazing how easy it is in a way for me to just say, yeah, you know, 
okay, that's done. Move on. And yet I know that I shut down to my girlfriend or my fiance, actually. I know that I shut down emotionally to her when I don't allow for that. So, you know, I'm curious, and maybe you can take us through your story and how you woke up to this. I think, was it 10 years ago now? Yeah, it was, it was in 2007. Like the importance of grieving, the role of grieving and what happened for you that, you know, threw you into this experience. Yeah, I'll back up a little bit that I had a lot of death. So I wasn't a stranger to death. I'd lost something like 20 people between high school and college. I'd had two best friends take their life. I actually, uh, one of my friends took her life and I drove to Vegas to clean it up. I mean, I was in some pretty heavy situations and I considered myself pretty resilient because I could show up and handle the family and take care of things. And I just thought I was resilient and is around comfortable around death. And in 2007, right around Christmas time, my brother came down for the holidays and they said, you know, he came in and said, I've gotten into, I'm shooting needles. It's gotten pretty bad. And I got to come live with you. I'm going to die. If I go back to Reno, which is where we were from, I'm going to die. And at the time, I just started a company. I'd maxed out credit cards. I had computers all over the living room. Uh, he was also an alcoholic, and I was an enabler. And I'd moved him in before, and everything had gotten destroyed. And just me leaving for an hour, and he's on a bender and beer bottle spill. And I looked around and was like, dude, I can't do it. You know, I got this company on the ground. I can't do it. And three days later, he went back to Reno and died of a heroin overdose. Uh, and at the time, with the limited training I had, I first found out the day I found out, I remember the morning. Uh, I woke up to like 50 text messages or missed calls and I cried really hard that morning. And then I made a decision to push that down and to go handle things. And it was a very conscious decision. Now my insight, I didn't know what I was doing, but I thought that's what strength was. So I went back, led the service, took care of the family. And I mean, I even didn't even cry during his service, right? It was a very much, I thought that's what I needed to do to show strength for everybody there was to not cry. I came back and I put my head down and I just started working. And I built the company that I had. We built it up over seven figures, which is, you know, I think one of my dreams was I was back to some core wounds, which will come up throughout this conversation. One of my wounds was feeling not enough as a child. And I thought if I made enough money, if I was successful enough in business, then I'd feel enough. So because of that wound, I was driven to primarily succeed that. Well, we finally were hitting this mark. It was all coming together. And then 2008 hit and 2008 hit, the economy started to go down. And all of a sudden we went from like 150 grand a month to 20 grand a month. We moved the company, my business partner that I'd lived together now for almost a year and a half together. I came home one day to find out that him and my girlfriend, who'd also been living with us for a year, were hooking up behind my back. So I took off to clear my head for the weekend, came back and they literally packed up the whole business, everything except for my stuff. And they took off and eloped and basically took off. So in one moment I lost my money, the business that I loved, my business partner, my girlfriend, my business partner was also my best friend because we've been living together for a year and a half. And in this, if you will, like total, all the areas of life totally taken away from me in the ashes. Then I was faced with like, oh, I chose this over my brother. And that was really my trajectory into this world. And I was faced to sit and look at my choices. I had a lot of grief, a lot of guilt and shame, but as an achiever, I didn't sit in it. <laughs> I went and did a bunch of ayahuasca ceremonies, a lot of plant medicine, ayahuasca ceremonies, San Pedro ceremonies. I uh, went to work with a shaman in Sedona who he was the one that helped me quite a bit doing forgiveness work, made me sleep on the ground, you know, wake up with the sun, train in the water. He was like a ripped shaman. So he was like conditioning me through this process. And then I decided who's the best in the world. I'm going to go work with them. I went to go work with Tony Robbins as a speaker and a trainer and traveled the country. So I thought in my mind, it's funny, at my bankruptcy, I was literally dropping off. I had to go bankruptcy. It was super shameful because I couldn't afford the bills for the business that I was still paying that I didn't have anymore. And so I literally was dropping off my car for the bankruptcy as I started the job with Tony where I had rental cars the whole time. It was like literally ashes to this thing. And at the time I thought it was my dream. So I thought, you know, Tony and I spent a couple years in peak performance, rebuilt my life. And I thought I'd healed. I thought I'd healed my trauma. I was doing forgiveness ceremonies. I was helping people around grief and loss. And five years ago, 2014-ish, I'd rebuilt my life. And I was like, okay, now it's time to start I find with your purpose, it keeps tapping and you could try not to do it. So like it would tap and I'd jump in a little bit and I would have crickets. And then it would, so I would get a tap and I would go further into grief and nobody would show up. I didn't really understand why. And I kind of rebuild and then it kept showing up. So I'm like, okay, how do I start to help people? And let me just get around it. And so I started, I volunteered at the VA and was doing hospice training, walking around with veterans here in LA who don't have anybody around them. And I got on grief forums and all these people have these horrific stories. They're pleading out and nobody's helping. Nobody's reaching out. 
And so I thought, here, I got all these great tools. I'll help you. And got on and started trying to help a couple people. I'll save you the details of their stories, but different stories. And I was just met with utter, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. And here I thought I knew all these things. And in the face of this heavy grief they were going through, I learned really quickly, like, oh, I don't have the tools I thought I did. So all of a sudden I was like, oh, well, let me start to research this. So I started researching grief. And I'm curious though, at that time, as you were trying to help, what did you think you were actually trying to help them do? I thought I was trying to help them feel better about their grief. Because here my training was like, you know, the mindset of like peak performance and Tony in that world was NLP, hypnosis. There's no obstacle you can't beat. There's nothing in life you can't take on. So my whole backstory was, how do I become a whole person? How do I become, I am whole, I'm not broken, I am free. Like I don't, so my whole visual lens that I was looking through was like, take away any limitation. So I thought, oh, this is a limitation. I'm going to help you heal this limitation. I'm going to help you solve this problem that you have. Yeah, that's right. What I'm hearing is fix it. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this for you. So I'm going to help you fix this because I fixed it. I've helped, I fixed it. So I'm going to help you fix it was my thought in that point, right? So I started researching grief and it was like, oh man, here's this messy subject. The top leading experts had different opinions. One says you need antidepressants after two weeks. The other says people are naturally resilient, need nothing. So it's like, huh, there's these far extremes. So I grabbed a camera and started interviewing. And I started interviewing, like I interviewed this guy and here's the moment it shifted for me. I'll kind of keep it to the main point. This guy named Ken Druck, which is one of the most amazing men I've ever met. He's a therapist, a doctor. He tragically lost his daughter 30 years ago when his studies abroad trip, which trajected his field into the work. His family fell apart. 50% of families bind together and 50% of families fall apart. When there's a loss, it's statistically 50-50. My theory is it's how they process the grief. 50% don't want to look at anything. They want it taken away. The other 50% want to be immersed in it. Like my parents still haven't touched my brother's room besides going through his dirty clothes, which they did a year ago for my film and it's been over a decade. So my dad didn't want to look at it. They wouldn't have worked, right? To give you an example. But Ken has spent the last 30 years going into 9-11 and Boston bombings and Sandy Hook trainings and all these different pieces. And he spent time with families on the ground. So I first started interviewing people that were a little bit more heady about the subjects. And I noticed I was in my head. And then when I met to speak with Ken, he was so certain, like powerfully certain, but the softest, gentlest soul. At the same time, it was this duality of like, speaking with such authority and such certainty in his body and his heart and his soul was so aligned on these truths. Yet at the same sign, it was so soft and so gentle because he'd had so much pain. And the certainty was we deserve a chance to spit in the face of God and yell and scream and object to what has happened and accepting the, this broken and whole concept of we're both. And he really explained what I mentioned earlier that came from him of this heartbreak. And our heartbreak doesn't leave sometimes. And it was interesting because I left this interview with these concepts of like, oh, I could not accept the duality, the role that is played in. We're here, everything's duality. So with the broken and whole, that conversation like, oh, what is still broken in me that I've made wrong? What have I been trying to fix that I can't fix? And so I left that and all filming stopped. Didn't know what happened at the time, but two years went by. And I was going through like breakups and relationships and a lot more of my brother's stuff. And all these things were coming up and I didn't have any tools. And at the time I was numbing, I was drinking more. The outside world wouldn't know, but I'd come home and, you know, work and everything would be great. And then I'd come home and drink or eat food or ice cream or porn, or I was numbing because I was having to feel all this heaviness. And a lot of emotion was starting to come through me, which I hadn't really experienced before. And at the end of two years, all of a sudden I looked up one day and it was like, I feel better. <laughs> And it was this such an interesting paradigm because it was like the last two years I'd look back and what I realized was I'd been a shell. I'd been an empty shell living in my head because I'd learned all these tools to feel good and to fix all the pain. And I'd been living in, what's that phrase they use where they say uh, spiritual bypass? I'd been spiritual bypassing with all the language I knew and all the tools I had been skipping all the pain to feel good. And I'd become this empty shell of fake feeling good that I would get reflected sometimes and didn't know how to receive it. Now, after going into my body and feel this pain, I felt more at peace than I'd ever felt. And I also felt more in my body, like more like, oh, this is what I was searching for with the money or different women that I would chase or whatever I was going after. I was chasing to fill something that was unfillable. And then now I found it by going the other direction. And it was like, oh, wow, this is mind blowing. I'm feeling more at peace now. And I'm getting that feeling than the things I was searching for that never gave me that 
Yeah, man, I, this is such an important conversation, an important message. You know, sometimes people will come to work with me. I was just thinking as you're talking, sometimes they'll come to because they want to get over a relationship. They broke up. They want to learn the lessons and move on and get ready for the next one, you know, that kind of thing. And And I find one of the most important things that we'll actually do is not move on too fast and really just sit in the pain, allow the fucking anger to just be witnessed It's amazing to me how many people, myself especially included, won't allow the anger through, you know, for all kinds of reasons. For me, it generally occurs. I can see lots of perspectives. So it's like, well, I see my role and what happened. And I know that I fucked up and I did this and I did that. And yeah, she was terrible. But, you know, I see what I did. And then, you know, she's innocent. You know, I do the whole, again, spiritual bypassing stuff. And I remember I did that after my last relationship before Sylvia is a five-year relationship. And I remember... I think about three years after we broke up and hadn't really communicated for like three years, I went through a month where in the shower, I just started letting myself be angry. I would literally be in the shower and I decided, you know what? I'm just going to say the shit that is here for me to say. No one's going to hear it. I'm not going to, you know, send this to her. This is for me. And I would say the nastiest things, man. It was not spiritual. It was not kind. It was not polite. It was not, it's not the things that a so-called good man would say. It was just me being spiteful and nasty and pissed and resentful and project all of that stuff. And I did that for about a month. And I was astonished to see at the end of that month, wow, I think I'm really over this now. I didn't have to get an apology from her. I didn't have to apologize again to her either. I didn't have to. It was like I just had to let myself just be angry and be kind of disgusting in my anger in a safe container, right? It was the shower. I mean, again, no one's going to hear me. This wasn't for anyone else to be a part of. And so I'll never forget that. And that taught me so much. And yet to this day, it remains a challenge for me to just let myself grieve and be or be angry when something that my mind says, nah, it's no big deal, man. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't. So when you do, I'm curious, when you do your emotional resiliency trainings and and through all of this, like, what do you think, and maybe you've already shared this to some degree, but what do you think are the sort of one of the key realizations or the sort of the keys that unlock a man's willingness to let himself feel all that he's feeling and not try to either numb it or take it out in a destructive way? on himself or others? It's a really good question. And here's what I'll say. Even though I'm teaching this, even though I'm practicing this, I still struggle with it. So it, I think, is the encoding of a man. We're, we are built our whole lives to not look at anything vulnerable, to not look at anything weak that we're perceived as weak, anything that we can't fix. So I think our natural go-to is we go into the head unconsciously and we move in to fix it. And so to me, the first level is awareness. And with that awareness... It's the awareness that, and I'll say this a couple times so it really lands, pain, not shame. Pain, not shame, meaning typically when we're shaming ourselves, something's going on emotionally. I know for me still, I still don't even know what's going on emotionally until I'm already in the numbing. But to me, that is the action signal when I'm having a deep craving for something and I've changed some of the things that I don't use anymore, but all of a sudden I'm craving carbs and want to go eat a pizza or something's coming up or I might go bake the pizza and eat the whole pizza. And then I have to really ask myself, did that pizza just sound really good or am I trying to push something down? Like so, and then a lot of times we shame ourselves for whatever we just did and then we get stuck in these loops. So it's a current distraction to feel good now for a short period of time, 30 seconds of eating that food to numb down what I'm feeling. So, so there's a should or shouldn't present, what I'm hearing. When you say the shame, I shouldn't be feeling this, I shouldn't have done that. There's The biggest thing is the body is almost down here going on with pain and we're trying to fix it from here, which we can't. So the biggest thing is if we're confused, if we're looping, if we're distracting, if we're numbing, if we're working, if we're really busy, whatever's going on, I notice there's an energy present when something's going on emotionally. The key to it is first becoming aware that it's happening. And again, it took me two months after my last relationship, even though I teach it to figure it out. So that's what I'm saying. You may go a period of time before you even recognize. And the way you recognize is the more present you have, the more you can identify what's going on. And the key is going in and feeling it in the actual body and moving out of the story. So for example, if you're looping a negative story, if you're looping the past, if you're looping the future, if you just keep working harder and there's no space, you're telling everybody, if you're isolating from everybody, 
Like there's a whole number of symptoms, if you will, that men typically do because we think there's something wrong. Let me go fix it. And what happens is there's no fix. So what happens is we end up punishing ourselves because we're trying to fix something that we can't fix. We get frustrated and then we go numb because we want to feel better and we don't know how to feel better. And then what happens is then we shame ourselves because we're like, I don't feel good. I don't know how to fix it. I'm never going to tell anybody this that I can't fix it because that would be outside of who I am as a man. So let me try this. Let me try this. And maybe it's more money. And we usually look out here to go try to solve it. And then we're numbing along the way because we don't know how to solve it. And what's happening is the sooner we can have the awareness that, oh, I'm numbing. I don't shame pain. It's like, oh, pain. And then moving directly from here right into the body and actually starting to just feel and be with it and identify where it's at. I have a process that I walk people through, but really the key is just describing what's going on in the body. Think of it as skip this where all the story is. Skip it and go right into the body like, oh, I'm noticing some circular thing going on in my chest. It feels dense and heavy like a big dark cloud and it feels like a big black matter. Okay, go take a couple, three, four deep breaths into that and just be with it. Like it's a little child that's throwing a temper tantrum that you can't fix. And just go sit in that, pull up a chair instead of slamming the door and saying, I don't want to look at you. I'm going to numb out through volume and knock myself out or I'm going to go eat a pizza or I'm going to go, you know, porn or work addiction. I think work addiction is one of the biggest ways because it looks good. Nobody knows we're numbing. It's like, I'm just going to work and be really busy and nobody can get to me emotionally. <laughs> instead, it's like, totally. And we get praised. We get acknowledged. And we get praised for it. Wow. You work so hard. You're making money. We get rewarded. And yet what we're doing is, yeah, an expression of numbing out. And, and how can we just pause that, go in and feel? And what I find is if you go in and feel and sit with that sensation for a while, it, without a fix, like you might call it out and say, I feel rejected right now. I feel angry right now. I feel whatever. I too couldn't feel anger until I started doing this work. And now it's like, ah, I'm angry. Then I'm feeling the anger. And then it's like, what do you need? And asking the body what it needs, like you would a partner. And a lot of times it's like, go get this anger out. Go beat the shit out of something that's in a healthy contained environment. Go. Uh, right. And like you said, go on a yelling spree. I need to yell and get the shit out of my system or I need to cry. That's a hard one. Like, oh, I need to cry. I don't know how to cry. So I've learned like, oh, watch a movie that makes me cry. Tune into that energy and let it move. Right. Yeah. 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 You know, since I've been in the practice of allowing myself to just be angry and not take it out on somebody, you know, to just be angry for the sake of being angry. I have come to fucking love losing my shit when I'm all alone. <laughs> like in the car or on a hike or in my, I have a little kind of yoga meditation room in the back of our house. And it is so enlivening to just turn that on for even just a few minutes. I have saved one very important relationship in my life because of that practice that had I taken out an anger that arose in me and expressed it as I wanted to, man, I wanted to hit the nuclear option with this person. It would have torn apart my family. Truly, and my family would have been torn apart. But because I did that practice on a hike, and for two hours I kind of you know, metaphorically murdered this person on a hike with nobody watching or listening. And I mean, if you were hiding in the bushes, you would have called the cops because you were sure someone was getting murdered. But after two hours, wow, I actually was able to feel the sadness that was inside, not just for me, but also for this other person and what they had gone through. And I was able to apologize. I was able to approach them in an entirely new way that wasn't even available to me until I let myself be angry. So I just think that's a profound and important practice. Well, I really love what you said earlier. You used an example where how long were you grieving before you let yourself do that in the shower before? Three years. And there's no one swipe fits all because it may have needed to take that time. But what I'm finding is resilience is how quickly can we bounce back? I find emotional resilience is emotionally how quickly can we bounce back? And what I'm finding is the sooner we can actually identify it, feel it, and let it express itself. Once it expresses itself, it's almost like, ah, it's like we're now present in the heart again. We can reestablish visions. We can really get clear. But until then, there's almost like this sludge that we keep replaying. I used to take eight or 10 months or 12 months or a year to get over something that I can do much faster by going in. So you were asking before, what's the value to men to do this work? If you want to move through things quicker, if you want to get things done faster, if you want to you know, not let things take so long and be in so much pain, then it's having the courage to go into the pain and sit in the pain faster and identify where it's at and reframe that it, it's just something uncomfortable. 
It's just like sitting in an ice bath where it's like, this is uncomfortable and let me breathe through it. Same tools we do. This is uncomfortable. Let me breathe. And then starting to ask, like it's a partner, literally like the body's a partner. Like, what do you need? What do you need right now? And what you do, it sounds like you asked and then you felt it. You've just been pushing it, pushing it down. And then it was like, oh, this needs to come out. You let it out. And it's like, oh, the body's like, thanks. You know, I've been needing to do that. And you didn't let it. So it's removing the judgment on ourselves, accepting that we're in immense, immense pain. And whatever that process needs to look at, take away all the filters. And in a safe container, allow yourself to really go there. And I find when you do, things shift much faster. So you get back in your heart. And then when you're back in your heart, out of your head, there's no confusion. You're clear. You can reimagine the future. You can, and I'll also say this, you suppress your grief and your pain and your anger. You suppress your joy and your happiness and your love. So feeling emotion, you limit one, you limit them all. You express them and you feel them all. You now get a different level of power back as a man because now you can feel a much wider range of emotions. And I'll tell you, you can be much more present with the people in life when they're in pain. You're not like trigger happy because they trigger that little thing and you're off running because it triggers a problem you can't fix. You go in and accept it. You can now be really gentle and really present with people because you're okay with your own pain. You're okay with your own pain that you can't fix. So you can be okay with their pain that they can't fix. So I think it's also a, just a good fundamental practice. Man, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that last part up about how it affects us in relationship through the emotions we want to experience more of, which is joy and enthusiasm and excitement. And what I have seen time and again, again, both in my own experience, particularly in couples, when I work with couples, and I'd love to kind of know your experience about this too. When you have, again, we're sort of speaking to men specifically, but when I'm not allowing myself to feel the sadness or the or the anger or whatever's there, what I notice happens is I become essentially emotionally constipated. I can't enjoy anything. And I know that the best gift that I can ever give my partner is my enthusiasm for just being in the room, just being enthusiastic and kind of, you know, I don't have to be all excited and joyful, but just to like be content and happy and be like, but I can't get there if I'm not allowing myself to feel the anger that's present at my dad, for example, or the sadness that's present because my friend, you know, moved to Greece, I may never see him again. You know, he's in his sixties and it's like, that's his future. And I don't if I see him, I'll see him for a couple of days on a vacation that fucking hurts. And if I don't allow myself to feel that, I will sort of, you know, depress everything. And my partner, that doesn't feel good to her. And then, you know, if she starts to agitate and get upset or complain, and I think, well, you know, God, you're never happy about anything. Or it's just a, it's this nasty spiral. She doesn't need me to fix anything for her. Just the more I really allow myself to feel what is there to be felt. And, oh, like you said, get to that place of... Oh, gosh, the body. Oh, relief. Now I can just be present. I can laugh again. I can, you know, really have enthusiasm for, you know, going to the farmer's market on Sunday, things like this. And, oh, and I noticed that my partner, she also starts to feel better because, you know, we're partnership. We're like tuning forks, tuning off of each other. So I think the repercussions and the importance of this, Josh, what you're pointing out, it's not just about we should grieve for the sake of grieving. Our lives are literally at stake inside of this, the quality of our life, the vitality of our life and of our relationships. So, you know, man, again, I just want to acknowledge, I don't think there's more important work that us men can do. And thank you for stepping in and doing it and helping men this way. Thanks, brother. I want to make one more comment on relationships where I'm finding this is highly effective is when we can look at the grief and the ugly parts of life that are uncomfortable, it teaches this whole other tool set that we didn't even know we weren't looking at. And one of the deep ones is our core wounds. And that's what's kind of come from the work is what I find is every, usually all the fights that I've gotten into are because my wounds getting triggered. These core wounds are, for me, it's not enough. And so what's helped me a lot is now that I've done all this grieving where I can sense it and feel it and go into it. Now when I'm, let's say in the context of a fight, something usually happens to trigger that wound. And in the past I would use the same things. I would numb, I would distract, I would isolate, I would avoid, I'd try to fix it from here. Now I'm learning to just go in and feel it take a time out. Ah, my wound got triggered. I'm feeling not enough. Let me go be with that without a fix. And if I sit there with that for a little bit, and then I ask what I need to do nine times out of 10, it tells me ah, I'm hurt. I actually got my feelings hurt or I'm sad. And then it tells me communicate, which before I didn't realize I thought I was this great communicator. And I didn't realize actually how much I lacked actually communicating my feelings because I had no connection to them. So I was able to go, 
oh, you don't have to take anything you did purposely, but this triggered a part of me when this happened and I felt really hurt. And that's what's going on with me. Or like you're saying, I didn't realize it, but now I'm feeling I'm really sad because I lost my friend. And what happens nine times out of 10 is we're (laughs) isolating and dumbing and doing these things. And half the time we're triggering our partner's wounds because we're in our own pain. We don't even know we're in pain. And they're like, what did I do to them? And they start thinking. And so we create these dynamics when the sooner we can feel it and then communicate it of like, especially in partnership, then the partner can really show up. I do a lot of work with first responders and veterans and firefighters. It's been so powerful because a lot of times they're on the job and don't even realize they're in trauma and are expected to come home a couple hours later and be present with their spouse and their kids. They're in heavy trauma and are usually isolating. They have no clue. So now they've been able to go, you can see it on their face, but they don't know because we've been trained not to feel. So instead it's like, okay, let me practice going and feeling. And then it's like, oh man, I had a really heavy day today. I'm in a lot of pain. And just communicating is resolving the relationship because the partner's like, how do I show up? What can I do? Before they were almost upset because they were distant and numbing and like emotionally not there. And the partner was taking it personally because the man didn't know how to communicate what was going on. And then he would get triggered because he felt like, I don't know what I do. So it's like these things, you see the pattern? Yeah. Exact. Dude. Yes. Fuck. Oh, so dude, it's so exciting to just hear you talk about that and how that's opening up. Cause Oh man, you know, working with couples, I see this all the time, these misunderstandings. It's like, and just, you know, the capacity to just communicate what I'm actually feeling, not what I'm thinking or what I'm, you know, carrying the stories and conclusions I'm making up about you or this or that, or, but just, I had a heavy, difficult day, you know, certainly with my partner, when I'm just share with her what I'm actually feeling, and it can be just as simple as saying, you know what, I'm really sad she gets turned on. She loves it. She immediately starts to soften. And it's amazing to me how, like you just said, how many so-called relationship problems, intractable problems that can span decades even, can start to get resolved or just never even take that kind of long-term shape by just talking about, of course, it's the one thing that we men don't want to talk about. But, you know, we got to learn. And it can be just as simple as just saying, you know, I feel really sad. Or even identifying the wound. I had a, another firefighter that recognized his was abandonment. And so he could basically go to his partner and realized every time they would go into a certain fight, he would trigger that. And once he identified it, he was like, hey, listen, you don't have to stay now. But I realize when we don't talk through it, it triggers a source of abandonment in me. So I'd really like to talk through it. You don't have to, but this is what's coming up for me. And she got mad and left that day. And then the next day she came back and was like, I really want to work on this and thank you for communicating. So it was like really vulnerable to communicate it, but he's taking the power of the relationship and the awareness of letting his partner know. A lot of times we have no clue. We're tripping each other's wires and we have no clue. So I'd say again, I think to the men, having the courage to go inside and deal with these messy parts of life, if you keep following down, they get to a root cause. And the root cause, the more you can go into those uncomfortable areas and not run from them or try to fix them, but just be with them. I find the energy doesn't leave and it comes at different times. It surfaces at different times. And the more we start to recognize that pattern, it's almost like another tool. It's like, ah, I can anticipate, oh, it's this energy. This is the toolbox I use to deal with this energy. I go in, I feel this energy, I be with it, I get the energy out and then I communicate it and now I'm back quicker. So it really, the sooner we do, the more awareness it has. And I got to say, it's also been resolving a lot of the patterns that I couldn't fix because I would loop things. I would skip stories and repeat patterns. My whole life was full of these big victim self-sabotage patterns. I didn't realize it consciously, but because I wasn't actually allowing myself to feel the pain, I would move so quickly until I started to learn to feel the pain. I've been resolving things because I actually can make a change. So I think it's really a good fundamental doorway to everything else. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Thank you so much, Joshua. We're going to finish one last final question, the question that I'd love to ask all or at least most of my guests, and then we'll wrap up with the five key takeaways finale. That last question is, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing men today and what wisdom can you offer in the face of it? I think the biggest challenge is isolation and loneliness. It's the lone wolf. I think this lone wolf mentality we've been raised, I think we're supposed to solve it on our own. I think it is the biggest cause of depression and isolation and inflammation in the body because we're a super predator that is alone and has our guard up 24-7 and our cortisol levels get jacked and all the inflammation of the body. And the key to that is building a community of men you can trust. It really solves everything. So that's to me it in a nutshell. Beautiful, man. Couldn't agree more. Thank you. All right. 
Let's wrap up with the five key takeaways finality. You ready to rock out on this? Key takeaway number one, key insight. What's the one key insight that you would offer our listeners that you believe can make a meaningful impact on their lives because it has in yours? I believe the ultimate measure of self-love is your ability to love your body the way it loves you. I'll just put one ending on this. Your body loves you through everything. It'll let you do anything to it, any numbing agent, beat you up through whatever. It just shows up gladly, helpfully to, to love you the next day. So how do we learn to love our body at that level? It sets the bar. Anytime you need to know self-love, mirror the body. How can we show up and love the body the way that it loves us? Wow, beautiful. And you know, when I turned 40 five years ago, it occurred to me, I was so ecstatic because it occurred to me, it is a miracle how long we live in these bodies. There are so many things trying to take us out on a daily basis. The fact that these bodies can endure so much in all of our acts of sabotage and keep regenerating itself in all the different ways that it does, or just keep us breathing and keep us going. Nothing short of astounding and miraculous. So I like the way that you frame that. Beautiful. Number two, key mentor. Name another man that you've been inspired by, living or dead, and maybe you already have in this episode, but that you'd recommend our listeners to learn more about. Yeah, you know, the first one that comes to mind is Ken Druck. He's really, he's not a big figure. He's, again, not a lot of people are running to research who's in the grief space, but he's got these principles to live by. And his name's Ken Druck. And he does a lot of work with people around loss. And he's also moved into the aging space, helping people age gracefully. And so again, it's another thing. It's aging is just another way of dealing with loss because you're losing who you are now to be okay, okay with you go. So it's the same principle, but he's a really gentle, kind soul that's got a lot of wisdom. Beautiful. And just in case you're listening, you're driving, or you're at the gym, all of this is going to be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash men this way podcast. So don't worry, just go to Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y, Reeves. What's my fucking website? Brian with com slash men this way podcast. Yeah. Damn. It'd be great. Thank you. Okay. Ken Druck. I'd actually like to have him on this podcast. I think it'd be fascinating to speak to. Uh, number three, key resource, your most impactful, inspiring book, movie, or podcast of the last year. Yeah. You know, it probably a tie between the book, The King, Warrior, Magician, and Lover. Highly recommend that. And also Iron John. Those two have been. I've been reading them over and over this last year. So it's been, uh, those have been both kind of a tie between the two. I am on board with that, man. Absolutely. Game changers for me. Number four, your key investment in the last year. What's the best thing you spent money on under 10 grand? You know, for me, it's actually where I live. I live and work from home and I realize my environment is really critical to me. So I live in a place where I'm right next to the water and it's super peaceful. And I'd say that's definitely my everyday space from when I wake up while I'm working throughout the day to my peaceful evenings has really made the biggest game changer in my nervous system and just how I function because I am driving a lot of projects and it allows me to be calm, keep my nervous system less stressed amidst all the self-induced stress. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, that's really good to hear. Sylvie and I are looking for a new place. We love our home that we have, but we're a bit lonely. We're a bit on the outskirts and a bit far from all our friends. And I mean, you've been here, so you know. I mean, we have a lovely home, but we're moving and we know that our rent is going to increase dramatically. But we're actually kind of excited about that because it also means that we're going to be stepping into an oasis, a refuge that we, you know, it's like what you just said, even as I'm looking at your background, you know, you and I are on video right now. And I just feel repose in my body. It feels restful. And you showed me the actual water that you're staring at over the top of your computer. And so I'm, I'm, that's really nice to hear that that's your investment, you know, whatever it costs to live there. So yeah, well, I'd love to get you guys on the West side, whatever it takes to get you guys closer anymore. There's a lot of different places around here. So I'll be pulling to try to pull you guys over this direction. <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah. When we stop recording here, I'll ask you, I got a few questions for you. One is the key practice. Please offer one consistent practice, spiritual, creative, personal, or relational that has served you well and that you challenge our listeners to take on for just the next seven days. Yeah, you know, just because of the nature of this, I have a lot of practices I do, but this one I think will be beneficial based on this podcast is, you know, part of this technique that we've been talking about is practicing. And I'll walk you through it. It's my emotional resilience technique, but I'll walk you through it. It's just real quick. It's real easy. First step one, notice when you're triggered. So notice when you're triggered, 
and pain, numbing, avoiding, anything that you're not present. Something's got your attention and your nervous system's responding and you're kind of, you're triggered, you're avoiding, you're numbing, you're doing something. First step is that is- I just want to offer a hint and maybe you were going to get there, but just if, because I can just imagine a man wondering, well, I don't really get triggered often. Bullshit. It's going to happen to you today. Look for it today. Thank you. Sorry. Continue. Yeah, no, thanks. It's you're pissed off over something. You're a little avoiding. So you go play a game. You buy that food you didn't think of like little things like it shows up slightly. It's just something takes that impulse or you're triggered up traffic or somebody's a pain in the ass or something around there. Step two is just pause, tactical pause. In the military, we talk a lot about pauses. They're used quite a bit. So you literally just say pause, time out, you know, take a fucking time out. Step three is move from your sympathetic nervous system. You're usually breathing shallow, which is all head. And you take three deep diaphragmic breaths. What that does is it gets you deep into your parasympathetic nervous system where you can actually solve problems. It actually also expands your body and gets you out of the fight or flight. Step four is describe, and this is what's a little tricky for men, start to describe where this is going on in your body. So if you're pissed off at somebody, describe that pissed off in your body. Where does that energy show up in your gut, in your stomach, in your throat, in your heart, in your leg? Like where does that energy show up in your body? And start to describe the sensations. The key is sensations. If you describe the sensations, you move out of the prefrontal cortex, the front of your brain, into the back of your brain, different part of your brain, which is what you want to get you out of that stuck story that you're looping, out of the trigger. And as you describe it, think of color, sensation, movement. So it's a circular thing that's dense. It is a dark, dark black color and it's moving, right? That would be an example of describing it. The more you describe the sensations, the more you move into your body. So what it's doing is it's slowing you down to get into feeling because we don't know how to feel as men. By describing it, that's your practice to start to get into feeling. Next, once you've really gotten clear with it, take another two deep breaths, just being with it. Look at it literally like this energy is not going anywhere. I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just going to sit with this and I'm going to breathe in and be present, almost like it's sitting on the chair next to you and I'm just going to be with it. And the last step is ask it what it needs. Ask it what it needs. And that's the action. That's what you're waiting for. You're like, give me some action. What do I got to do with this? Not just sit in it and listen to the action step. It'll be a whisper. It's not a loud one like the head. It's usually like you need to go have a conversation with somebody or you're fucking angry. Actually go get this anger out or you're sad. You're really sad right now or you're missing somebody or you're lonely or, and then what I encourage you to do is ask if there's a way you can do that and be with that emotion. And if you have a family, like a spouse or kids, you may need space, but can you do it with them? And this has been probably one of the biggest game changers. Most of our conditioning came from our parents teaching us, like you mentioned earlier, how to disassociate from our pain. A lot of the men have done really special things by doing this. Like one of them noticed he hadn't touched the guitar in years. And when he's sad, he noticed if he picks up the guitar and starts playing it, he feels better. And then he also noticed that his daughter had been threatening suicide. And so he now would go to her and said, Hey, I had a really tough day today and I'm really sad. And what I find works well is to play the guitar. You want to come play the guitar with me? And he brings her into that conversation. They play the guitar together and he's teaching her to be okay with her emotions, be vulnerable, and then to find healthy outlets to not try to take it away, but to express that, to express it. So it can show up in a narrow way. Maybe yours is writing or workouts or the gym or these whole other plethora of things that it could be. But I encourage you, Find a way to be with your people you love, not isolate and be alone. You can, you know, totally have permission to do what you need, but I invite you to see if there's a way you can do it with them by communicating with them and it can be a massive game changer. So I encourage you or invite you to practice that for the next seven days, just noticing and walking through those steps. Man, epic. Thank you. Beautiful. Joshua, thank you so much for what you're doing. And actually, take a moment. Tell us where can our listeners find you and what do you want us to know that you're up to right now? Yeah, so you can find me on my website, joshuawenner.com. It's just J-O-S-H-U-A-W-E-N-N-E-R.com. You can also find my emotional resilience work, emotionalresiliencetraining.com. And then my film, my film is grief to grace film.com. Those are the three primary areas. I'm also on social media. I mean, it's just my full name if you're looking for me. So it's easier. It's Joshua Michael Winner. And yeah, up to a lot of projects. I uh, would love to connect with you if you feel called to. You're up to so much good in the world, man. It's an honor to know you. Thanks, brother. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Joshua Winner. Find Joshua at www.joshuawenner.com. 
And of course, any links and resources and Joshua's five key takeaways and also the trailer for his Grief to Grace documentary. It'll all be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash podcast. If you want to share what this conversation inspired in you or ask any questions, please email me directly at brian at brianreeves.com because I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you were served by this and think others should hear it too, please share this episode or even better, just write a review so that you too can lead more men this way. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.